In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. Hello, everyone. We have Andrew Werner with us. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Mixergy, where he invites proven entrepreneurs to teach how they build their startups. Past founders who participated in the site includes the founders of Wikipedia, Sun, LinkedIn, and more than 600 others as well. I met Andrew at the first time at OnDeck, and it was a pleasure talking to him and understanding the business podcasting landscape as well. And I somehow loved his uh, nuggets of information. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I was just reading uh, that you are launching your book this October. It's Stop Asking Questions. And I was wondering (laughs) that... How shall we go forward with this conversation? Because if I do not ask questions, how will I get the response from your end? But yeah, over to you. Good question. So here's the thing. I find that when we ask questions, either because we're working for someone we admire and we want to learn from them, or because we're getting to know new people at dinner, or frankly, more often than not, when we're doing interviews like the one that you're doing with me or the ones that I've done over the last decade, if we keep asking questions, we sound a lot like needy interns. Can you tell me how you came up with your business idea? Where where do you think the industry is going? <laughs> but like, it's just too needy. And it gives the impression that you're somebody who needs to be helped, 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 instead of somebody who's in charge and going to guide the conversation well. So what I recommend for interviewers, for people who are just trying to learn from others, or just general conversationalists, is to every once in a while, turn a question into a statement. So for example, instead of, where'd you come up with your business idea? Or could you tell me where you came up with your business idea? Instead of those questions, say, tell me where you came up with your business idea. Tell me how you started. You're guiding the person. And it's a subtle thing, but question, question, question hits the head with this sense of neediness. And I've got to be here to help this person out versus guidance makes people feel like, that you're going to show them where to go, that you're leading them to a good place. And especially when you're an interviewer, that is important to your guests. They want to know that they're in good hands, that their story will be told well, that they're with someone who knows how to shape their lives into something that's interesting and worth listening to. And that's why I said, let's make the book. Don't ask questions. Focus on that. Excellent. I think uh, I'll definitely uh, read that. I actually uh, read a couple of initial pages as well. Love that. My question to you, of course, it's a bad opening, (laughs) but is, um, uh, you know, 14 years of podcasting, Andrew, that's a long, long time. I mean, of course, you're embedded in the Silicon Valley network. You've spoken to the best of the, you know, startup founders, VCs, etc. How has it been for you? I mean, like, how could you maintain the rhythm for so, so long? And were there times in your journey where you thought that maybe, you know, I'll take a pivot and go after something else, or it was always consistent that you will keep going on for more years to come? I always wanted to continue this thing. The idea that you could reach out to anyone that you admire, anyone you want to learn from, and then say, can I spend an hour just understanding how you did it, getting direct help for the things that I'm struggling with? or frankly, just getting to know you. It's an incredible gift. We are so fortunate that podcasting is giving this to us. I don't know how long this will last. It could be that in 10 years, every human being on the planet will have a podcast and everyone who wants to be interviewed will say, enough of that. I don't want it. 
but for as long as it's possible, I absolutely want to do it. So a lot of people want to do it. The question then becomes, how do you sustain it? How do you do it without having it become such an overpowering thing or such a big chore or just something that you want to do, but doesn't get done. And for me, the answer is to have a system and a system where it's not on me to have the discipline to get it done, but it's on the system to pull me forward and make sure to get it done. So for example, this week I'm in Austin in an Airbnb. I've been with my kids. We're starting a new school. We're uh, low hours. My wife, as soon as we landed, she spent time with the kids, but then the very first day of school, she had to go back to San Francisco for a meeting. So she dropped the kids off with me at school. I drove her to the airport and then it was just me. So all this to say, I got a lot going on in my life this week. The last thing I want to do is do a bunch of interviews, but I'm doing them. Not, not with you. You're, this is a new thing that uh, we scheduled, but I mean, my interviews for my podcast, the reason that I'm doing them is they're scheduled on my calendar. I can't, when there's something scheduled on my calendar, say, ah, I'm going to blow it off. We always, as human beings, especially as ambitious, determined people, we look inwardly. Where do I get the self-discipline? Self-discipline is one of the most poisonous words I think that we've come up with because it means you have to have the discipline to do something versus if you could just say, I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm not going to have the discipline myself all the time. In my worst moments, it shouldn't be on my self-discipline, but instead say, how do I create a system that in my best moments carries me forward? And so for me, that system is a booking process that books guests weeks, if not months into the future, a system that says, all I have to do is put up my laptop and hit a button so that I don't have any obstacles to recording. It's all those little things that come together to allow me to get this done without having to stress it, without having to always have the self-discipline and have it all be on me. Absolutely. And a lot of newbies across the world are really getting onto the podcasting bandwagon as well. I think last year, I was looking at the stats sometime in January or March 2020, there were like 850K podcasts. I think for the last 16 months, I think currently we stand at around like three and a half million podcasts, which means that people are just minting out podcast episodes so many times, but definitely only the top 1% of the podcasts are beyond 21 episodes. That's what the Reddit folks have been uh, telling. But um, yeah, 14 years, I'm in huge respect for the rhythm and uh, absolutely love some of the episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And before we talk more about this podcasting thing, one thing Sashwood and I are super passionate about, and I know, Andrew, you're passionate about that too. It's about chess and not that business related, but more about the hobby. And I know one of your most recent podcasts, I think it's the recent podcast you published on Mixergy is with uh, Eric Alabest, the CEO and founder of chess.com. And I know you've been playing for more than 10 years now, right? And I know you're doing more puzzles than playing actual games, but I would just love to know what's your favorite opening? What do you <laughs> love to play in chess? I hate to say it, but I'll say it. I use the London and the, uh, oh no, why? Why don't you like the London opening? Because I always lose against the London. That's why I hate it. That's why. So here's what I did. I got a coach and it's been so helpful. I think that we forget the value of coaches. Here's, here's where having a coach was tremendously helpful. Number one, 
he showed me how to use the apps right. Like all the little nuances that we're not used to that take us a while to learn. Like, look at us, we're podcasters. Think of how many episodes, Oscar, we were talking before we got started. Think of how many episodes it took you to get the editing process right, to know the little nuances of the software, right? If you had a coach, as they were criticizing you, they might've said, oh, try this software instead, or here's the adjustment, right? They show you all these things that you don't expect. You might go into a coach saying like I did, teach me how to play chess, but they also show you other things that go into learning to play chess. So uh, he showed me how to use Lee Chess, not just chess.com, why chess.com was better, what few things Lee Chess has an advantage of, right? It's an open source chess thing. It just showed me all these things. And of course, he looked at uh, every one of my games and started giving me feedback and telling me, Andrew, you're trying to go all over the place. Let's focus on the London for white and Karakan for black. These are two openings that are absolutely solid and you can go a long way with just those openings. And sure enough, I have been. Same thing happened, by the way, with interviewing. I hired a coach. I said, I need somebody to help me. And what we did was after every one of my episodes, I would send him a transcript and he would ignore the transcript (laughs) um, until the day of our conversation. And then we would look at the transcript together at the session using Google Docs. He would say, Andrew, give me some time. He would let me quiet down. And then he would read my transcript and then say, here's what you did. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Or I would say, this woman is angry at me. What happened? I remember there was one woman. I walk outside of my building, leave the office, happy-go-lucky, getting ready to ride my bike to go home. And she calls me and she's angry. Andrew, I can't believe you did that to me. I said, what, what do you mean? He says, Andrew, I thought we were friends. I trusted you. I've been a customer of yours. And now this, I said, so what are you, what's going on? And she told me how upset she was with the interview. Truthfully, I thought that I did an interview that was way too nice to her. I was just supportive and she did well. And I was encouraging. So I bring it back to my, um, my coach. I say, can you take a look? What do you think happened? He goes, yeah, you're, you're way too nice here. You need to edit out some of these niceties. I said, so why is she so upset? He said, look at your last question. I looked at my last question. And in the last question, I specifically brought up, I said, look, now that we have a lot of rapport, that you trust me, that you see that I'm coming from a good place, I have to ask you a tough question. And then I asked her a tough question, one tough question at the end of the interview. And that is what she was upset about. And he said, people remember the last thing that you say. And I realized, oh, a lot of times in my interviews, a lot of times in my conversations, I feel like we've built rapport. And I think now's the time that I've earned the ability to ask a tough question. And I would ask a tough question at the end. He showed me that's not the right way to do it. You have to put it in. If you're going to do it, put it in earlier, let them end on a high note. And so those little things from coaches are tremendously helpful. Yeah, that's pure gold. I think I mean, I have been playing chess for like more than three years now. And what I do, you mentioned it in your podcast as well. You play your game, you make mistakes, and then you learn by analyzing them, the games. But I have been considering getting a, a coach as well. I don't have a coach right now, but I think... You should do it. It's inexpensive. Chess coaches will will work with you for like 15 bucks. James Altucher, the amazing writer and entrepreneur and investor and so many other things that he's done. He's on top of everything else. He loves games. He's been giving me some coaching via Zoom. And I said, James, why are you doing this? James, why are you spending so much time with me, giving me assignments and then going over my games and so on? He said, what I learned is, and I forget that he phrased it so well, but he said, basically, 
He wants to be with one person he's ahead, one person he's at the same level with, and one person who's behind him. And I said, why do you need the behind? He said, when you have to explain what you know to somebody who's behind you, you're forced to really learn it, to make sure you really believe and understand it. And so that's what happens when he works with me. I'm not nearly as good a player as he is. So he has to explain his ideas to me. He has to explain his education process. And by doing that, it reinforces. I think that if you got a coach, they wouldn't necessarily charge you a lot because what they're trying to do is teach themselves how to, how to do it. Oh, okay. And by the way, if you play chess.com, I told Eric, he has so many features in that app that it's too hard to find them. My favorite of all of them is at the end of a game, so you get matched with someone else or a computer. I prefer to get matched with someone else. At the end of a game, you could have the software analyze every move or just show you the key moves. Here's the best thing that I got out of it. There's so many games where I thought I was losing and mentally I'd given up and I said, okay, this one didn't happen. I lost a bunch of pieces. Next game, I'll improve. Next game, I'll study this one and I won't repeat the same mistakes. And in the end, when I go back and I analyze the game, I see I was actually ahead. I had a chance to checkmate the person, but I didn't even realize it. Or I was ahead and I had an opportunity to take a piece and to further my uh, advancement. That's something that is just tremendous for life. How many times do we think that we're behind, but in fact, we're ahead of the pack. We don't realize it. I thought the same thing when I was doing my podcasting in the beginning, I was doing podcasting, hardly anyone listened to me. And I thought, this sucks. There's a YouTuber whose kid bit his brother's <laughs> finger and that is getting millions of views and mine is getting just thousands. What I didn't realize was how many entrepreneurs were listening to my podcast. I was ahead. How many entrepreneurs were improving their businesses because of my podcast. I was ahead and I didn't realize it. And it's only in retrospect that I went back and I said, oh, this was actually much better than I thought. So coming back to chess, to be able to have a place in life where you could make a move, win or lose, and then be analyzed to understand what happened is such a good way to get better, to improve, to learn about yourself and to learn about life. And frankly, if any other game did that for me, I might've I might have switched over to it. But chess and specifically, and I don't get paid by chess.com, <laughs> but chess and specifically with chess.com, with that analysis afterwards, does that. It's just tremendous growth. Do you do that, Oscar? Do you, do you use the post-game analysis? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that feeling when you have a checkmate and you don't see it. I know it too well. Right. It's, it's, it's just insane. Yeah. But I, I love that you said you learned a lot for your personal life, for your business life. Like you think you are behind, but in fact, you're ahead or that you can like do those mistakes you do in your business life and you can iterate and learn from them, become better. I think that's a great learning I got from chess as well. So I think chess is just a great game, easy to learn, hard to master, but all in all, you get some great learnings for your life. Sasha, what's your take on, on chess? Oh, I think I was like, last year was a pandemic year. So definitely I got into chess on the mobile phone itself and I started playing on chess.com as well. But of course, but Netflix, uh, Queen's Gambit was a little bit of thirst. I mean, you know, like many folks watched that. I even watched it, loved it as well. And so I was a little bit big on uh, chess. But coincidentally, yesterday when I was researching for uh, our today's discussion, right, Andrew, I found a framework for chess for our podcast as well. And I would love to know your thoughts and maybe some of the comments as well. So we completed our season one. We had 23 of their amazing guests as well. Uh, we were uh, coached by some of the best, um, you know, leaders from the on-deck ecosystem as well. And then I realized that season two has to be something very different and should have a very unique story arc as well. And that's what I figured out is that anyways, we are discussing or having interviews or wonderful discussions with a lot of entrepreneurs 
venture capitalists and a lot of operators as well. So I thought, what if the second season we have the chess format where let's say the king part is the founder or the CEO of the company, the queen, which is like nine points, could be an operator or COO. Uh, the two bishops could be, let's say, customer success, sales, marketing, UX, UI folks. And the two rooks who have like five points each could be primarily the CTO or the CPO, the product and the engineering folks. The two knights could be investors. Those could be anchor investors, lead or follow on investors as well. And the rest of the pawns could be, let's say, director of customer support, DevOps, legal, finance, admin, and the other folks operating in the startup and uh, venture capital ecosystem. What are your thoughts on those? I think it makes sense. I think it might be a little complicated for people to understand in audio format who's who, but I understand the big point here. What you want to do is say, if we're going to understand this industry, we can't just talk to one type of person. We need to get a broader understanding. And I think that that makes a ton of sense. And so you, if I understand you right, you would maybe even go to the new hire who has no decision-making power, but intentionally picked working at a SaaS company for a reason. What's that reason? Am I right? I think more to figure out where that particular person fits in in the game of chess. Like chess is the game of strategy. So obviously, you know, you are aiming to become a particular piece eventually and maybe play the game as well. You could be, let's say, if you are aiming to become one of the best operators in a SaaS company, ideally it fits like maybe you could be the queen, right? You understand your moves and you play the game. And if you are, let's say, an investor, eventually you start as from angel investing and then go for typical marquee VC, then you could be a knight as well. So it's just like putting pictures on all the people that we'll get as guests, giving them a piece and asking that, do you think that Knight could be a good thing for a VC? I mean, you know, we just interviewed one of the gentlemen from Knight VC in Amsterdam, and he was saying that uh, definitely they had the logo of the horse on their uh, VC company. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, so you nailed uh, it. And we thought, wow. why not? I mean, if, if that's the case, then maybe, you know, because it's uh, entrepreneurs are the change makers. So definitely they are the kings and they are uh, moving the needle. Let's make them the kings. And the rest of the pieces, we'll put them as like CPOs, CTOs, etc. So just thinking about it, but you are still getting feedback from a lot, lot of people. But this idea just came yesterday because I thought, you know, while we'll be discussing chess, why not toss this idea of Andrew and let's see what he says. I think it makes sense. I'm a little concerned that it's complicated. And I'm also concerned that when people don't understand chess, they feel completely overwhelmed by it. It's not a hard game, as Oscar said, to learn. But if you don't know it and you see that one piece goes this way, another goes that way, and it, the way that they interact with each other is unusual, I'm concerned that it might be a little bit off-putting for people who don't understand chess. And for people who do, it might still not be a natural analogy to pick up on, but could be that it's just in the way that I've understood it today. And maybe you've got a, a way of explaining it and putting all the pieces together that I hadn't seen. Frankly, who would have thought that the Queen's Gambit could turn out to be such a popular movie? <laughs> True that. And uh, let's uh, right jump into uh, podcasting as well, right? What is your biggest learning in building a podcasting brand? Mixergy with the beads on, fat face of Andrew Werner on is well known, especially in the business podcasting landscape. So what was the approach to uh, build this particular brand and the uh, podcast per se? One is to just have a really clear idea of what I want out of the conversations I was fortunate in that I started after a failure where the software company, the second one that I built just didn't work out. And I was so thrown by that, that I just had to stop and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing nearly as well as I thought I did. Let's learn from people. 
And that is a guiding understanding of the podcast helped me and my guests. They knew what they were in for. They knew what I was aiming for. And there were others in the audience who maybe didn't have the exact same experience as me. Definitely didn't. But they also had a sense of, I want to do right. I want to learn. And Andrew's not here to grill the way that other people are. Andrew's not here to come in and be just a passive observer. He's here to learn because he has something he wants to do. And I've always, I've always aimed for that. I think I start my podcast also by saying, hey, there, freedom fighters. And I think that for some people, that's a mysterious word that they just kind of blow off and assume it's a quirk of my conversation. But for others, they understand where I'm coming from with it. I did the podcast when I was in Argentina. And I said, I'm just going to spend time here focusing on this podcast and doing nothing else except enjoying the country. And what I noticed was Americans were all like wearing Che Guevara t-shirts at the time. And they were idolizing all the old freedom fighters who were going to you know, turn South America into a set of countries that were owned and run by the people, which nobody in, in South America felt that worked out especially well. They were thinking of entrepreneurs as the freedom fighters that they were looking for and who they were benefiting from. When I think about the people who are struggling in South America, yes, they were struggling because of the government, but they were not hoping for a revolution in the government. They were hoping someone would create an app that would save them. I'm talking about people who couldn't afford to work because the government wouldn't let them get paid from international clients because that was some kind of an issue. They couldn't use apps that Americans could use because Americans were worried about international users doing something nefarious on their software. So all these people are saying, we're hoping for new entrepreneurs who are going to reset things, who are going to find ways for us to get paid so that we can work as part of the international workforce and international community. They were looking for people who would create new apps that would actually work internationally. So PayPal at the time would not let me, an American with an American passport, with an American PayPal address that goes back to the founding days, essentially, of PayPal, they would not let me use my PayPal account in Argentina. I had to get an Amazon computer and log in from there. And I call that BS Stripe. And I needed it because PayPal was how I was getting paid from uh, customers on my site. Stripe said, Stripe said, you know what? What if we don't just help international people get paid, but what if we create accounts for them in the US if that's where they need their accounts and we make it easy for them, right? The entrepreneurs behind Stripe helped save the day for the entrepreneurs and the people who were living in Argentina at the time. And so that's a guiding post for me. That's a guiding light for Mixergy. What? How do we learn how to be entrepreneurs and not just do it because there's riches at the end of the rainbow, though that's actually very important, but also because we're here to save the world in many ways. We're here to help the entrepreneurs and the citizens of the world who don't have access. They're not looking to their government anymore. They've given up on government. They're hoping that an entrepreneur comes in and comes up with a solution to their problems. And that is what's happening. They're hoping that a creator will come in and solve their problems and allow them to be better human beings, have better lives. And that's our goal. Awesome. And uh, the name, uh, Andrew Mixergy, how did that come up? I was looking for a name that was uniquely mine that I could just hold on to. And so I said, how do I make it up? Well, Mixergy started with these events that people were calling mixers in, in Los Angeles. Mixers were a thing where you just mix a bunch of people together. And so I thought, all right, I got mixers. And I also have this idea that I think there's a synergy when people work together, they become better. I said, I'll mix it together. I also like the, the word energy. It, that's always been part of who I am. I'm a high energy person. And so mixers with energy, mixers where you get synergy, let's mix it together. Boom. I got mixergy. And then the name became a thing. And when I transitioned from events to interviews, 
the name wasn't such a great fit, but I kept asking my guests because they were branders. I said, what do you think? Should I change the name? And they said, no, you've nailed a brand here. Don't back away from it. Now just keep building on the brand, add more meaning to it. So the people who know it know more about what it means so that more people get to feel it. So I've stuck with it. Absolutely. I think brand is what you make out of it, right? So you can hold on to any name, right? Who would know that if you just go to, let's say, 30 years back, who would know that a name like Apple would be so much known in the tech space, right? I also see that uh, True Mind Beats that you have in, as a, in the picture. What's the story behind that? I was in the Balkans thinking back about my life. Olivia and I had just started dating. We're married now, but I wasn't sure if she was someone I wanted to spend more time with. So early in our relationship, I said, Olivia, we're going to go someplace new, someplace that's not comfortable. Let's see how we do together. And so we went to the Balkans, no agenda. We were just going to take buses around and just figure things out with our backpacks. And I was doing a lot of reading on these buses. And I I started to look at my old journal entries and realizing that a lot of my success and failure came from my ability to either be confident about a situation or frankly, to lose confidence. And just like we talked about in chess, you look back in retrospect and you say, hey, I was ahead, but I was playing like I was behind. And as a result, I lost the game. I noticed there were times in my life where that was true too. And said, if it's really not just about what I know, but also, and often more so because of how confident I am and how I'm convinced that I'll find a solution, why am I not doing that? Why am I not training myself to stay in that confident zone? And I thought a lot of the times when I screw myself up, it's because there's a voice in my head that says, you've lost this game. You're in the wrong direction. You're not going to figure this out. Think about the next one. That was a big one for me, right? Think about the next game, but also think about the next sale. This one is lost. So, well, that stuff is just a lie in my head. I don't want to focus on that. Meanwhile, the truth, which is there's always a way. I'll find a way here. I'm going to enjoy the process of looking for a way. I can talk myself into anything and talk other people into a lot of things. Let's just stay in that. Why am I not thinking about that? And I realize it's because I'm just not held to, I don't have a system. I don't have an external thing that allows me to stay focused on that. And the books that I was reading had these meditation beads in them randomly, but also when I was going through the Balkans, I remember being on the bus and this like really bulky muscular guy had these meditation beads in his hand. And he started out on the bus, like kind of like raging, you know, just couldn't sit still. And then he used the meditation beads one beat at a time. I'm sure he was saying a prayer had some kind of religious significance to him, but it also had a calming thing. Move a bead, think, move a bead, think that I thought, huh, all over the Balkans are selling these things that I'm reading about in my book. This guy is doing it. Other people are doing it. Let's just get it. And I said, I'm going to pick a thought that I really care about, and I'm just going to train myself to think about it. And I would think about it and move a bead. And I would think about it and move a bead. And I would start thinking about other things. And I would start to have my mind wander. And then I'd see that I was holding the beads. And so I said, oh, Let's come back to what I'm doing here. Think the positive thought, think what I want to think and move the bead and just stay focused. And pretty soon you force yourself to do it. I don't even know how many beads they had on their Tespies as they called it at the time. But by the time it was done, I felt like he did calmer, but also more centered and focused on who I was and what I wanted because I chose it because I picked something that was true, a true part of my mind to focus on. And so I kept using those beads. And when I got back to the US, I... I bought a set of beads from 
a store right outside of the supermarket in Los Angeles. And I used them so much. It was this long necklace that when I moved to Argentina from Los Angeles and the thing ripped, the nice thing about Argentina is there are a lot of artisans who will just do things and make things. So I found an artisan. I said, look, this necklace broke. Can you do anything about it? She said, sure. And she rebuilt it. And I still have it to this day. And I use it. It's been helpful to pick your thoughts and then have an external tool to train you to keep staying with the thoughts that you pick, the ones that are true, the ones that are helpful for you. And that's what you see me do. That's a fascinating story, Andrew. Thanks. I love that you rebuilt this beat because I think there's a lot of emotional value to it, right? If you just bought a new one, it's a whole different story. I mean, this emotional value, you have been taking care of it like quite a long time. And I think that's very valuable when you take care of something like that. Andrew, what I'd love to know about is you've been working on Mixergy for 14 years now. I assume you've got a lot of feedback from your community to tell you that, and the community tells you like, Andrew, you need to pump up the energy or you need to do X, Y, and Z. What do you think? How important is it to be authentic in your podcast, to be yourself basically, to get the success in the end? Because copying somebody is one thing, but being yourself is just a whole different story. How important is that to you? I think being myself is critical and people can hear when you're not yourself. They hear that phoniness. But here's what I look for from the audience. I take any feedback. I, I Even the most hateful feedback, for some reason, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I think maybe it's because in high school, first day, nobody knew me. It was so odd to go from a place where people knew me my whole life to suddenly go to high school in Brooklyn where I didn't know Brooklyn and I didn't know anyone there. I didn't. And I just saw some people knew each other. And I remember walking around going, I would even like it if they hated me because they don't even see that I exist here. This is weird. And so I'll take that kind of feedback. And frankly, even in the most anger, there's often a lot of utility and a lot of passion and sometimes clarity, and I'll take it all. What I look for, though, beyond that, when I really want something that's useful is to understand people's problems. What are they going through? I don't necessarily need them to tell me, Andrew, slow down or speed it up or be angrier, more confrontational or be nicer. What I'm looking for is what's the problem you have? When I tap into somebody's problem, if I give them the solution or direction, even if it, like in the early days of Mixergy podcast where my audio was terrible because I didn't have a good microphone, I didn't understand how to quiet things down. By the way, you know that I'm in an Airbnb now, right? To do this interview, there's a refrigerator that goes off and makes noise. I travel with this little plug. I plugged it into the back of the refrigerator before this interview started. I made sure that it was working. And now I can hit on my iPad, which is right in front of me, a button to turn that whole refrigerator off so it doesn't make noise and a button come back to turn it back on when I'm done with the interview, right? Little details are there. In the beginning, it wasn't there. So why did people listen? Why did so many heavy hitter entrepreneurs listen? Because I was addressing a problem that they had. They were trying to figure out how were other people hiring What was going to happen with SaaS? In the early days of SaaS, there was this belief that SaaS was just not a real business tool because it happened all on the web. And I remember Jason Fried from Basecamp had to stand up and say, you know what? Everyone calls it the airplane time where when you're in an airplane, you can't use software if it exists only on the web. And so people will not use software that's only on the web. But he said, calm down. How many times are you on an airplane? That it's an issue. It's not an issue for most people. Keep building. Here's what he was saying. And he said, I have success here with Basecamp. It'll work for you too. 
what I was doing was bringing entrepreneurs on who talked about how it was working for them, why it was working for them, addressing problems about hiring, addressing problems about getting customers, talking about the innovative things they did to get customers. And for that, the audience of entrepreneurs who were building tech companies, software companies, they would stop and listen. They would stop no matter what was going on. I remember I moved to San Francisco and I immediately got this winery. There's this great winery. There was, he's gone. This guy who was a winemaker in dog patch operating out of basically a garage. He had such a cool vibe in there. Nobody knew about it. Nobody cared about it. He eventually closed up shop. But I remember I was running through dog patch because there was nobody there. And I just saw this guy in a garage doing wine tastings. I said, I got to book the space. I booked the space. I went online and I said, I'm booking this winery. Who wants to come out for some wine tasting and let's meet each other? And a bunch of entrepreneurs came, they all listened, and they would tell me stories like, Andrew, when I'm driving into work or when I'm driving on the weekend with my wife, I will raise the volume when your guests talk and lower it when you talk because your mic levels are not right. Oscar's laughing. That's why you're laughing because you you'd recognize this. this is a problem that's now been solved. I didn't know about that and I didn't have software to handle it properly. They listened because they were dealing with a problem. And so we have to do, whether we're podcasters or entrepreneurs or business people, try to understand What's the problem our people have? How do we address that? What's the problem? We don't even have to solve it. What's the problem? Let's understand it. I love that. And I think you mentioned it earlier that you provide some value to those people is, is the most important thing when you do podcasting. And that's why people actually listen to you. So what I found very interesting, Andrew, is you've been working at Dale Carnegie and Associates, right? I found it in your, in your bio. And you said, because the books of Dale Carnegie has su had such a huge impact on your personal life, on your business life. And you decided to teach other people because we talked about it in chess. When you teach other people who are, yeah, let's say not in a disrespectful way, but who are behind you, you can learn a lot from that. What were your biggest learnings from those books actually? I really struggled to get to know people because I didn't understand why they did what they did. Why would somebody, for example, go drinking with their friends instead of reading a book? Maybe they, I thought they were just not ambitious enough that they were losers and I was a winner and all that. And I just didn't understand how people functioned. The book, How to Win Friends and Influence People is one that I I went and I got, and it immediately explained what goes on with people. We have egos, it says, and it acknowledges the ego. And it says, instead of putting it down, let's just accept that we have egos and we do things based on our egos. And if we're going to laugh at other people for doing it and say that they're failures for giving into their egos, and we should recognize that even the things we do are ego-based. He said, even the thing that you think is most selfless, giving to charity, if you really are honest with yourself, you'll say that it makes you feel good about who you are, about the world you want to create, et cetera. So acknowledge you have an ego, acknowledge they have an ego. Now, what do we do about that? Instead of thinking we are better than other people because we have, because of our ego tells us that, let's acknowledge they have it too. And let's, instead of putting their egos down, let's feed into it. And so it would uh, suggest things like ask people about what they're excited about, ask people about themselves. And I would think, huh, that's not very functional in a conversation, but I understand that they care about that and they, they want to feel great and elevated. And the reason that I'm talking about myself a lot or thinking about myself a lot is that I think that I'm the most important person. Maybe I should. And I, and it got more tactical than that. And I love that the book is very tactical. And so I was able to use the tactics, but it also was a book that was written in story format. 
Dale Carnegie is someone who's taught his students how to give presentations that would get people to listen. And so he was really good about using the same techniques that he was teaching in class to get people to pay attention to what he wrote in the book. And the reason I went to work for them was I wanted to see it in action. I'd never seen anyone who could do that. I grew up in New York where everyone's so hard charging in your face. I wanted to see what it was like to be the opposite and just caring and in your heart. And so I knocked on the door of Dale Carnegie and Associates. I heard their office was right in Midtown. I went there unannounced and I said, I read the book. I loved it. They were shocked. I guess people didn't know, just wander in, not shocked that I liked the book, but shocked that I would come in. I said, I'm in college. I'd like to get a job here for free. I don't want to get paid just so I can learn. And immediately they said, we know just the right person for you to work with. And it was this guy, Robert, and they brought me over to him. And I understood later on why he was a huge experimenter. He would throw out the book at times. In fact, I said, I'm going to read all the Dale Carnegie offshoot books that the company has written based on his ideas. He said, no, don't hear these other books that are newer that I think you should read. And I don't care if I work for Dale Carnegie, I'm going to tell you what books you should be reading instead of even our books. And he was willing to work with me and let me see how he worked and how he sold. And then they said, we can't not pay you. How about if we just let you take the class for free? And so I got to take the class and that whole thing was uh, very helpful. Well, that was inspirational as well. I was just uh, looking into one of your videos at HustleCon 2015. So one of the biggest challenges you spoke is to get rid of the distractions and the voices in your head that tell you that you cannot do it. In the podcasting journey, quite a lot of people start off, but after, let's say, 10 episodes, 20 episodes, they just give up, you know, like for the, you know, newbies, you know, what would you recommend or advise as a mentor, like what their approach has to be and how they can cultivate a very strong mindset to keep going. Always have another interview lined up. Always have another interview lined up. That's critical. And so if I landed in Argentina from New York, I didn't know what office I would be recording out of. I didn't even know what the internet was going to be like in Argentina. I'd scheduled an interview for the week after I landed. And so I had to scramble and find a place. And I said to myself, look, if I can't record it using my computer, I'll record it using some kind of conference software and I'll do it that way. But there's always an interview lined up. And if you have an interview lined up with someone you admire, it's much more painful for you to contact them and say, I can't do the interview than for you to say, oh, I'll just go with the momentum and do the interview. I'll do it even simpler. And so that's really important. That's the number one thing I'd give. The second thing I would do is find an easy way to publish. You do not want to get so bogged down in process that you can't do it. I'm a runner. I've run marathons. I've discovered that number one, if I have an external goal, like a marathon scheduled, I'm more likely to train for it. But number two, if my running shoes are put away somewhere, if my running clothes are put away somewhere, I'm much less likely to do it. And I'm going to even tell you, even if it's in the laundry and I have to go and wash it the night before so that I can get ready to run the day of, it's not going to happen as much. But if I am in my clothes, if I have my clothes nearby, I'll do it. There was one period in my life where I was, Olivia had gone away for a week for a set of meetings somewhere or a conference. I said, I'm not running enough because she's not here. I need to do something. I just slept in my running clothes. The next morning I woke up, I had my running clothes on. It was a lot easier for me to do it. So I think that we get into this whole, how do I edit perfectly? Where do I publish right? And all that. I think it's much better to publish poorly and to publish and keep doing it than to try to get it all right and to consistently improve 
or not consistently, but to get every everything right. So if, if I were doing it now, the way that other people are getting started, I'd see that there are tons of tools and I just ignore almost all of them. I'd say, what's the one tool that's going to get me to publish faster? I don't want to build a website. I don't want to have to do any editing. What do I do that makes it so easy that I publish and then I'll improve as I continue? I think that's a better way to, to continue. Yeah, and I feel like... Uh... Many people, maybe sometimes Sashwood and I as well are like stuck in this. Really, we want to create the best possible content as possible, right? And we talked about it, Andrew, before our recording here. How do you feel about like pushing out this raw content with like little to no edits, but just to hear that how people are actually speaking, how people actually talk versus this high quality stuff where everything is polished? I mean, are you more on this side as I, I heard right now? to push it, but just be consistent with your progress or with your schedule. I think the number one thing is when you're getting started to find a way to just keep going, to just find a way that's going to allow you to keep publishing. Your number one challenge when you're starting is not how to make it perfect. It's how to get it out there consistently. And I used to say, the only way is to do unedited interviews. And the way that I, the reason that I said that is because when I thought back on the people who I admired pre-podcast days, there were people like Howard Stern, where stuff would come out that was just so shocking that it would even make some of the awkwardness in getting there worth it. Because you never knew when that payoff would come out. You never knew when someone would reveal having sex with someone that they shouldn't have revealed or what money they made from the album that they sold and just came out later on. But I, I recognize that there's a lot of value in good editing too now and that both approaches work. And if you look at Joe Rogan, a lot of times the first half hour of his interview, I'm just in pain, but then he eventually comes up with something that's amazing. That's an approach that is fun and it's interesting and it's more casual. And then you listen to NPR and the first thing out of their mouths is something that's going to hook you in and make you want to listen. And that, that approach works. I think they both work. I think they absolutely both work. I mean, yeah, you've been been very consistent with your podcasting career. And I think for a lot of founders, startup builders, it's like they're in this hustling mode, right? They work 24-7, do just business, only business. And they sometimes maybe neglect their health, maybe neglect their mindset. What do you actually do to balance your mind and your business? I mean, you, you mentioned you do marathon running, right? Like to travel. What are your approaches to that? What do you do? I had this business that some people know hit over $30 million in annual sales. It was an online greeting card company that my brother and I bootstrapped. We ran into problems with that. And suddenly I was in debt. And I found that I was someone who was working all the time. And the reason I felt good about myself was that work was going well and we were making good money. And once we hit debt, I felt like everything in my life was going wrong. Our sales were going down. I was in debt. Nothing was good. And so I couldn't bring my most ambitious, most confident self into the office. And so a friend of mine was doing this AIDS walk and she invited me to come and just train with her. And so I got on the treadmill and I started working the treadmill. And then at night, I just couldn't sit still with how much of a failure I felt I was. And so I'd go running. And then during the day, our CFO said, Andrew, you should go running. And I said, I can't run in the middle of the day. He said, yeah, I, you should. And because he's a CFO and I respected him, I listened to him and I went for like an hour run and I gave myself that time. Actually, at the time, it was half an hour run with maybe half an hour getting ready and clean up afterwards, whatever, somewhere around there. But I would do it because you said it. And I would 
push myself to run a little faster, a little further to sign up for a race and do better at the race. And when I did that, I felt better about myself at the office the next day. I felt like, oh yeah, I can do this. Even literally times when I was running through Central Park where I lived near where I lived at the time, I would see a rollerblader and say, if I can outlast that rollerblader, I will be, I will be able to outlast any problem in my business and I will come out ahead and I would run, run, run. The rollerblader would beat me. And then eventually, because it's all in a loop that I was going, I would see the rollerblader sitting out and I say, yes, I could do anything. And I go back into the office feeling like I could do anything and it helped. What that taught me was that I need to have more in my life than business, because if all I have is business and business is going well, then I think that I'm not doing well and I'm a failure. But if I have business and running and other things and family and friends, if one is not working well and the others are going great, I think terrific. I'm in a good spot here and I could do anything in the other parts of my life. Because of that running experience, I felt confident enough to rescue the business. We got out of debt. We uh, were able to take money off the table. It was fantastic but I needed to be able to get into a good frame of mind for it. And so that's why I'd recommend that you have something else in your life. And I remember I felt guilty about doing it. And then I started talking to Tim Ferriss and he was in the early interviews, he was very big about entrepreneurs should have another thing in their lives, not just work. And that conversation with him and others made me realize I should talk out about this. This actually is an important thing for people to know. That was very, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from those words as well. So, Andrew, I think um, if you would not have told me that you are sitting at a Airbnb, I would have gone for as a personal studio of yours for sure, with the mic and everything all all set up on. So, I think um, uh, we spoke uh, a little bit about podcasting and a bunch of things as well. And your book launch is coming this October, if I'm not wrong. Stop asking questions. So, folks um, who would love to, uh, you know, grab Andrew Warner's book, please buy it. Are you selling it on Amazon, or what's the case? We're not. What I'm looking for right now is a few people to give me feedback on it to make sure that it makes sense, that it's rolling off well. And so I've taken some of the techniques that have helped me in conversations, both in interviews and in regular life. You know, a lot of people will come to my office for scotch and say, how is everyone talking so openly? And I, I laughingly say it's a scotch. And they said, no, I noticed a lot of people don't drink scotch here. They're here for the conversation. How do you get these conversations to be so open here and everywhere else? And I said, you know, I'm just using the same techniques I learned in my interviews as I did interviews over the last 14 years, as you guys reminded me, whenever a technique worked, I put it in a Google doc and I named it. Whenever a technique didn't work, I would get together with my coach and we'd say, what else could I have done? Why didn't this work? And we improve and improve until we get it to work. And then I put it in my Google doc with a name. And so over COVID, when I was working from home more, I decided I'm going to take time to write it all out. And what I did now is I've got it in a book, but I'm sending out some of these techniques to people who can give me feedback on it and kind of be part of the book creation publishing process. And yes, it's available right now for anyone. I'm, I'm selling a little hard here because I want some feedback from real entrepreneurs. I want to see how does this work in everyday life? I'd love to get somebody to say, Andrew, I use this with my mom. Andrew, I use this with this on a sales call. I use this with my co-founder. I can't believe what happened so that I can then use it in the book or in future interviews about the book. So yes, it's the, the site is stopaskingquestions.co stopaskingquestions.co. Let's get in there. And I'd love to meet people who are using these techniques. Awesome. And uh, with that, our final questions, of course, we shouldn't be asking more questions. It should be, Andrew, any any books or any, um, uh, especially to you, right? I mean, any podcasts apart from yours that you are really, uh, you know, appreciating or really yes. like it? Yeah. I like your podcast. I think that it's focused on the right people. And it's also in a casual conversation that feels like what I miss about San Francisco. 
And I feel like we've let go of a lot of that now because people aren't going out as much in San Francisco. I love the Acquired podcast. The Acquired podcast does two different kinds of podcast episodes. They either will do interviews, which I think are just so-so, or the two hosts of the podcast will take a business and they will just tell the story of the business in detail and told to a set of entrepreneur and investor listeners tell it really well. So if you're into Berkshire Hathaway, there are three part series. I think each episode is like three and a half hours of them telling the story of Berkshire Hathaway. That's fantastic. I like the Harpo story about how Oprah Winfrey built her business. The Bitcoin story is kind of interesting, though I've seen them do others that are better. But what they'll do is they'll take a single company and they'll go through the whole thing. And then um, for books, I kind of like the WeWork storybooks. I'm reading The Cult of Weed right now. I find that it's very easy to put down the business practices that led to the demise of of WeWork's IPO and to the trouble at WeWork. I think it's very easy to say Adam Newman and his wife, Rebecca Newman, are just horrible people. We could take that away. And we can obviously see that they've made some big business blunders and they had some ego that, that hurt the business. But I'm more curious about what do they say to persuade investors? How were they able to communicate their vision? How did they change their vision to appeal to a mass audience? What was it that they got right that we could take away from it? And I think where everyone else is putting someone down, we should stand up and say, what are they missing? What can I learn from this and use? And those books now, especially The Cult of We, uh, which I'm currently reading, I think are very interesting. Let's enjoy them. Let's not then have schadenfreude and say, ha they failed and the world is terrible. But instead go, that's an interesting way that he phrased it. He always thought about going bigger. He saw what, what investors were looking for, tech companies, and he reset his vision as a tech company, even though he's an office company. What can I take away from that? Sure. I think, um, of course, books are about narratives as well. If not the, just the story, it's also fascinating to understand how the author tries to tell the story as well. So the arc, the story arc is sometimes is also interesting. So I think, uh, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. We are really grateful to have you on our show. And I definitely, when Sachit Gupta, my mentor out there in non-tech introduced to you, it was a, it was an absolute pleasure. I think he's in Austin, actually. I think so. If I'm not, he moved from- Last I heard, he left Austin. Before I got here, he moved moved. Um, I don't know if he's talking about it publicly, but he moved somewhere beautiful. And oh boy. Uh, he's, oh, is he talking about publicly than Hawaii? He's basically going to all the areas that we're only now discovering. He went to Miami and now Miami oh. is blowing up. Yeah. He went to Austin. Austin, of course, is blowing up. He's going, he's, if he's still in Hawaii now, yeah. we should all be moving to Hawaii too, because he knows where the next place is. Yeah. Cool, cool. I think, um, thank you so much, Andrew. And um, uh, in our journey, podcasting journey, especially, I think, you know, we are like two hosts in different locations and uh, we we haven't met in person. I mean, he's in Germany, I'm in India, and we are we just happened to meet in a pandemic year in, in a Slack channel and we conversed and we started a podcast and uh, we'll keep you updated as to how our journey goes. And who knows, we'll uh, get you, uh, I mean, as a mentor, I'd get some advices from you as well. Thanks so much, Andrew. I love it.
Sasirak.